that as with the natural, so with the spiritual. And I'll never forget in Yorkshire, the speaker's always saying, you know, whenever you come across some natural law in life, it's normally because it's expounding some spiritual law uh, as well. And uh, it means that uh, natural things, when, when, when you look at them through the lens of God's character, take on a spiritual meaning, a new meaning. So, for example, even the human body in Scripture is so much more than just a body, isn't it? It's, it speaks of something richer than that. It, it, we, we are part of a bigger body that we can understand because we have a body. And the spiritual body as Christ as its head and all the different rest of the different parts of the body have different functions. So these lovely ideas come out. Take the example of a woman. A woman is not just a woman. Is she when when applied spiritually, she becomes something much more, much richer, much different. Um, take the example of the sea and the waves roaring. All of a sudden, it's not just describing the sea and the waves roaring anymore. When we when we apply it through the lens of God's character, we see something else. When you think of the sun and the moon, when you think of day and night, when you think of light and darkness, all things that we experience every single day. When you see through the lens of what God is teaching us through those things, you suddenly discover all of the universe has written into it uh, some kind of um, uh, message, some some richness of the character of God himself. Think about things like animals from Leviathan to the lamb, to the way they behave and the, the, the way their characters are described in Scripture. They are teaching us something, if not about ourselves, if not about God then our relationship with God or to God or, or whatever it might be. Think about food. Simple things like food all of a sudden have a richer meaning in, in God's purpose, don't they? Because um, it's not really just about food anymore. We eat food because we need to survive and we need to live and our bodies need energy. And suddenly we discover that's not really what food is there to teach us. Food is actually there to teach us that we, we actually rely and need uh, much richer spiritual food than that and think about gold and precious metals think about precious stones and how they are used in the bible is what we're going to do this evening and it's just the same story isn't it you discover these things have a much deeper richer meaning and in fact maybe our statement is the wrong way around isn't it as with the natural i said so with the spiritual I wonder if it really ought to be the other way around, that as with the spiritual, so with the natural, it's actually maybe perhaps we ought to look at the world around us and see that the primary function is the spiritual realm, that God is trying to help us understand, to appreciate, and actually the natural world is just a, a mere representation of the things that God wants us to learn and to discover about him spiritually and I just like to have a think about that this evening as we go through these these ideas about precious metals and precious stones and how we can see these these things in God's purpose and, and what they mean well precious metals and stones are a well-known bible metaphor aren't they and in fact if you just cast your eyes down the chapter John read for us I, 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 especially since we read it recently as well, I, I think this chapter is really beautifully eloquent about, about this idea. And in fact, it's really quite interesting, isn't it? If you think that Job was written quite early, in fact, you know, historically, chronologically, 
then it's interesting how specifically Job describes here, doesn't he, man's attempts to extract from the earth these precious metals. In fact, he describes mining there in verse one. There is a vein or a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken out of the earth. Brass is molten from the stone. And he describes men digging and digging um, pits and so on in order to extract precious metals from the earth's core. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that um, potentially very, very, very early in human history, man has attempted to extract from the earth these precious minerals, materials, stones, metals, whatever they may be. And in fact, there in verse 10, look, it says, man cuts out rivers among the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. And, uh, and in fact, it says he brings it out into the light, which is a lovely description, isn't it? Um, the idea that, uh, that, that, that these precious things, until they are brought out of the darkness of the earth, they have no value at all, do they? The, the, the thing that makes a stone, a precious stone, precious or precious metals, precious is when you shine light on them and you discover the richness of their natural beauty. And Job describes here men bringing out bringing out of the earth these these items and bringing them out into the light so that their beauty can be seen and their value can be appreciated and i guess uh, by, by nature therefore they become something of material value to the one who finds it but it's interesting now what job goes on to tell us these things really represent in god's eyes isn't it which is again a well-known metaphor in scripture because in verse 12, down to the end of the chapter, Job says, but hang on a second, where is wisdom to be found? And where is the place of understanding? Men do not appreciate the price and it's not found in the land of the living. Isn't that a lovely kind of juxtaposition of these two ideas then? Job in the first 11 verse of this chapter says, he describes the lengths men go to to extract these precious stones and metals and uh, to discover their wealth and their value so we can get rich. That's the idea here, isn't it? The, the, the risks men will take and still take today, in fact, um, diamond mining in, uh, in the third world and gold mining, wherever it takes place, can be a very risky business, uh, a very expensive process. And in fact, we keep discovering new minerals, don't we? I'm in the car business, uh, as some of you know, and, uh, the next gold rush is to find the precious minerals that go to make up battery chemistry and the lengths men will go to to extract these materials from the earth because of their inherent value. And yet Job goes on to say, but hang on a second, there's something much richer and more valuable than that in the, in the universe. Where is it? Can man find it? If he digs deep enough, will he discover it? Is it in the deep or is it in the oceans or buried underneath mountains? And in fact, in the first half of this chapter here, even it's almost describes as if man is damaging the earth, isn't it? He describes um, that the earth is, is the place of bread there. And yet somehow, for some reason, uh, underneath is it's turned into fire, verse, verse five. Uh, as man underneath this beautiful serene earth on the outside producing natural and spiritual food for mankind and yet deep down underneath in the bowels of the earth in fact growing up in Yorkshire my my grandpa was a 
a miner and he used to go and uh, he used to be on the pit to recovery team when the alarms would go and collapses would happen and uh, somebody would have to go digging to recover the men. And somehow deep down in the earth, despite what may, what may appear on the outside, in fact, it says here later in the chapter that the vultures and the, the eagles, even they don't know about these places men go to dig for these minerals. And yet for all that, brothers and sisters, and it's an age-old problem, isn't it? Men will go to these extraordinary lengths to extract these natural materials, and yet they do not know even the existence of the real wealth that God has placed in the earth. And even if they did, they wouldn't know how to extract it. That's the great irony of this, isn't it? Verse 15 of Job 28, wisdom cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. Just notice how many precious stones actually brothers are mentioned in this chapter, because it's not often you get a chapter with a collection of precious stones. And it's worth just following those up when you come across them. The gold, verse 17, and crystal cannot equal it. And the exchange of it will not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention will be made of coral or pearls. For the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia will not equal it. Neither shall it be valued with pure gold whence then comes wisdom and where is the place of understanding seeing seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air so you can see this lovely juxtaposition in this chapter which is not uncommon not unique to this chapter that you get this comparison between god's wisdom and the the precious things god has to offer with the finest materials that the world can produce such as gold and silver and rubies and topaz and pearls and coral, these items that are described here, sapphires. And even they, even they, says Job, cannot equal the wisdom that God offers. But notice in verse 23, and I want you to just lodge this in your, in your mind if you can, because we'll, we'll maybe end with this idea that God understands the way and he knows the place. And Job is speaking about both things, doesn't he? God knows where every diamond is hiding in the earth. He knows where every topaz, every ruby is buried away there deep in the earth. And he also knows the place of wisdom because he made that too. And he looks, verse 24, to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heaven. Nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Men don't always even know where the rubies are or the gold is or the sapphires, or the topazes are. He knows maybe where he might should go digging, but he doesn't know how deep, or how far, or how many, or how good. God sees everything. Some beautiful ideas being brought out here. He sees under the whole heaven, and of course, Job ends this chapter, as John beautifully read, the fear of the Lord. And this isn't the only place you've read this statement in scripture, but Job uh, confirms where else you've read this statement too, particularly in the wisdom books, of course. The conclusion of all things is that the fear of the Lord is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. So that's if you want to see a man of great wealth in God's eyes, then these are the qualities you're looking for. Not 
cords of gold or a big pension pot or those kinds of things, but these kind of qualities. And yet the funny thing is, brothers and sisters, when we come across these items in scripture and the people who possess them in great quantity, I want you to notice this evening how sometimes by divine ordination, the two came together, both the physical riches, the, the gold and the silver and the precious stones became symbols of the fact outright overtly that these spiritual qualities were seen there by God and existed too. And what I want to take you through in, in the time we have available this evening, brothers and sisters, is a look at how wealth moved throughout scripture, because it's very interesting how scripture just plots the development and the movement of the wealth of the, the then known world. And I want you to see how that just evolves as we go through our Bible and to see particularly, of course, in Israel's history, when the wealth came in and when they were very prosperous and when the wealth went out and when they were not prosperous. And just to follow how carefully scripture identifies those times and the correlations that are made between their spiritual qualities too. So we've looked here in Job 28. And just before we, we, um, we dive into some quick look at history, let's just remember some other passages as well that, that confirm this idea, this correlation between these, these precious things and, um, uh, and, and their, their spiritual uh, counterpart, their spiritual meaning. You'll remember well, for example, Psalm 19. Is it Psalm 19 that describes um, the, the, the judgments of the Lord uh, are, are true and righteous altogether, altogether, better are they than gold, fine gold. So the closest thing the psalmist could also think to compare the righteous judgments of God with was fine gold, not just normal gold. And there's a distinction made in scripture between gold and fine gold or good gold. And that is the, the judgments of God. And even then, it's a poor comparison, he says, but I can't think of anything else in the natural world that comes close to it. That's that's nice, isn't it? You remember phrases like Proverbs 16, 16, where the writer says, uh, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And in fact, just look at one or two of these with me where it, more than just comparing these kind of um, spiritual qualities with these precious materials it, be it begins to become more personal than that too have a look with me at proverbs chapter three you'll remember this one i'm sure proverbs chapter three um verse 13 happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gets understanding for the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. Isn't that lovely? So that's wisdom and understanding again being correlated with these precious things like silver and gold. And then he goes on to say, she is more precious than rubies. And all the things you can desire are not to be compared to her. Length of days are in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honour. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. Beautiful 
passage there, isn't it, describing this, this woman personified now as wisdom. And of course, uh, she, she gets mentioned again in chapter eight that you'll remember well when she's described as having been made by God before the foundation of the world. Um, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse uh, verse 10. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. And then, of course, the, the, the bulk of the rest of the chapter is this person wisdom describing herself. I Verse 12, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil and so on. Counsel and sound wisdom are mine. I am understanding and I have strength. Verse 18, riches and honour are with me. Yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold. Yea, than fine gold and my revenue than choice silver. So if you can get this woman, she represents the finest that God has to offer that can't really be compared to gold or silver or rubies, but there's nothing else that can comes close, certainly at the time when this writer was documenting this under inspiration, that the most valuable things of his day were being mildly here compared to the riches and the honour that God offers us through an understanding of his ways and of his purpose. It's a lovely idea, that isn't it, Bren sisters? If ever we're feeling poor, if we may even feel poor by this world's standards, or if ever we're feeling rich by this world's standards, what a what a challenging thing to consider, Bren sisters, whether when God surveys us and takes a look at us, he sees that we carry the same wealth in his eyes and in his estimation there's one of the tools i want you to look at really quickly coming into isaiah 13 and um this is in a a little section of isaiah's prophecy and and i, I just want you to notice the context here because it will become useful later on where isaiah is making a prophecy about the destruction of jerusalem by babylon and in fact uh, chapter 14 of course of isaiah is the famous uh, the famous chapter addressed to the king of Babylon uh, because of because he's raised himself up. So particularly chapters 13 and 14 here are prophecies 100 years before. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar would come down and uh, destroy Jerusalem. Uh, these are these are some prophecies that God made through Isaiah about the rise of Babylon long before it happened and the destruction that they would um, they would bring upon Jerusalem. And notice what God says here in Isaiah chapter 13 and uh, verse 11. I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir or the pure gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth, shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So God is describing here, isn't he, what he's going to do 
to Judah and Jerusalem at the hands of the king of Babylon. And um, he describes it as shaking the earth. I want you to notice that because that will come up again later. And he says, and he describes the, um, the rarity of men in Jerusalem in that day as the rarity of gold, even fine gold, the fine gold of Ophir, right? So now you get this interesting contrast now, not just with wisdom and understanding with gold, but now it's people and it's getting personal, isn't it? If you can find a man in Jerusalem now, it will be like finding gold. So just, just lodge that in your mind. And come with me to one more before we move on to Lamentations chapter four. Um, so, of course, these are the Lamentations of Jeremiah. So we're moving from 100 years before it happened to, I guess, while it's happening or right after it's, it's happened now. <clears throat> um, here in Lamentations chapter four. Here we are. Got to find it myself. And uh, again, I just want you to notice here the description that Jeremiah gives of Jerusalem after the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar has wrought. So there we have the prophecy in, um, in Isaiah of the rarity of men in Jerusalem being like as rare as real fine gold, the best gold. And now listen to how Jeremiah describes Jerusalem. Verse one of Lamentations four, how is the gold become dim? How is the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold. How are they esteemed as earthen pictures? The work of the hands of the potter. Isn't that a fascinating description there of Jerusalem now? As Jeremiah looks at Jerusalem, and he describes the precious sons of Zion, who should be like fine gold, have been changed into earthen pictures. And in fact, I think it's the ESV translation that renders that phrase there in verse two. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold. I think the ESV translates that, who are, who are worth their weight in gold. If you wanted to know wherever that, that phrase comes from that we so often use, it's worth its weight in gold. Well, it comes right here out of Lamentations 4, that the precious sons of Zion should have been worth their weight in gold. So lovely personification there, isn't it? As to how God wanted to see men and women of understanding and of the, the, the wisdom of God. That's how he wanted to, to see them. So hopefully those passages just show you some of the ways in which scripture draws this kind of metaphor, this contrast, this juxtaposition, this, this comparison between these precious metals and stones, particularly gold and silver, and particularly things like rubies and those kinds of stones with, with um, spiritual qualities and also spiritual people. And, uh, and just, just try and carry that with you now in your mind. Now then, brothers and sisters, here's a question for you. And this is one of the things I hate about doing virtual talks because I can't hear your answers, but uh, I'm sure you'll be shouting them at me. Can you remember the first ever reference to gold in the Bible? The first ever mention of gold in the Bible? Genesis, and, uh, the rivers. Oh, okay. 
John, John has the microphone, which is always a risk, right? Thank you, John. So the first mention, of course, is very, very early in Scripture. Thanks, John. In Genesis 2, where you'll be, you're, where you're given this interesting, almost uh, geographical location of where God planted the Garden of Eden. And one of the first descriptions you get is he says there was a river flowing out of Eden and uh, and uh, and it split into the, the river split into four heads, the first of which was Pishon. And if you remember, the description strangely says it goes all around the land of Havilah, which I can see popping up in the chat box now. Very good. And uh, and it says that there is gold there and the onyx stone, it says in the authorised version, and delium. And then it just says in parentheses, and the gold of that land is good. And I don't know, ever since I've been reading that as a kid, you're left thinking, why does God want you to know that there, in Genesis 2, not only was there gold, it was good gold. And that's the very same word that came out of Genesis 1, if you remember. Every time God did something, God saw that it was good and in the land of Havilah, where this first branch of the river out of Eden flows off, right, right around the land of Havilah, there is gold there, and it's good gold. And it means fine gold, pure gold. I don't know whether it means it was just lying there in the riverbed, you know, a bit like in the gold rush days of America or something like that, or whether it means uh, it was pure in, its, uh, in, in the form in which you found it. It needed no refining. I, I don't know what it means. I'm not a metallurgist. I just want you to note, for curiosity's sake, that the very first mention of gold is right there in, in, the, in the region where God had planted the Garden of Eden. Now, isn't that interesting? After all that we just looked at, that that's where the gold was. And it was good. Really good. Okay. Now, Next question then, where is the next time you come across gold after that in the Bible? And it's not, well, it's not much later on in terms of how many pages you have to turn. It's a couple of thousand years in, in the time, I guess. And it's in Genesis 13. And the very first person you discover who is a wealthy owner of such substances is a man you know very, very well, Abram. Just look there in chapter 13 and verse 1 of Genesis. Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich, note that, very rich, in cattle and in silver and in gold. The first really, really wealthy man you ever come across in history is this man, Abraham, wealthy in gold and silver and in cattle, which I guess would have been the, uh, the currency of the day. All right, so that's interesting, isn't it? This man who is about to establish the household of faith, we're right here in, in Abraham's early days now in the record here, and he is wealthy in silver and gold. Now, it's interesting, Francis, if you just think about that, statement we read in Genesis 2 or we alluded to in Genesis 2 that the land of Havilah is rich in gold to, to find out where Havilah was I don't know whether this works or not again I'm just just throwing you out these little threads and you can decide whether to tie them up or not yourselves later in Genesis 10 when we're given the genealogy of Noah's children 
and you follow the line of Shem, of course, which is the family from which Abraham comes, you might remember a man called Eber in Genesis 10 in the descendants of Noah. Eber had two sons that we know about, one called Peleg and one called Joktan. Joktan had 13 sons that are listed there in Genesis 10. And among those 13 sons are three very interesting names. One, for the context of our study this evening, that is, they're all interesting, of course. One is called Havilah, which is the region, of course, where in Genesis 2 it was described the gold was there and it was good. Another of those names is Sheba. Now, you might know a, a queen who came from Sheba to see Solomon bringing with her much gold. That's interesting, isn't it? And the third name among Jopton's family that you need to note for the purpose of this study are Ophir, O-P-H-I-R, which is only ever used in the Bible to describe its gold. So that's interesting, isn't it? In this family of Joktan, we have both Havilah, we have Sheba, and we have Ophir. And descended from that family is this first man we discover who is the, the owner, the heir of this fortune, this gold and this silver. I don't know whether that's you want to do anything with that or not. I'm just fascinating, isn't it, to dig out these gems from scripture and see see what they are telling us or trying to tell us now you might remember the next reference to gold after genesis 13 here still in abram's lifetime which is when as an old man abram sent his servant if you remember to find a wife for isaac i know we don't have time to look at it now because i'm rapidly running out of it but you remember the conversation abram's servant had with laban and bethuel when he arrives in in a paid an Aram there, and uh, the servant asks if he can take Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. And his description of his master is, God has made him a great man in gold and silver and in cattle. And you might remember how Laban's eyes lit up when the servant offered Rebecca and Laban the golden earrings and the bracelets and the, and the money, of course, as the dowry for very precious dowry, no doubt, for, for Rebecca. And you get this lovely contrast right there, don't you, of what it was that these individuals were seeing as the value. Laban there, when his eyes lit up, when he saw all the material things, Rebecca, when she heard what the servant had to say about the promises and the prophecies that had been made by God concerning Abraham, she said she would be willing to go with that man and become Isaac's wife. So right there in that marriage you can see the, um, the juxtaposition and the challenge and the, and, the, and the metaphors that are being brought out there. Even as the, the, the steward of Abraham's house bestows upon her all these beautiful jewels, not just because they were wealthy in their own right, but because they were a symbol of what the bride of Christ would ultimately look like in the eyes of God, prepared and adorned, we're told, aren't we, for her husband. Beautiful metaphors they're being being brought out well what happened to all that money that Abraham had well I guess um, it would have gone down the family wouldn't it through Isaac and to Jacob and in fact if you remember 
when Jacob sent his sons to go and buy food from Joseph in Egypt, when the famine struck, of course, they didn't like money. They had no problem affording the, the food. What they lacked was bread. And to go and acquire bread, they took money and gifts down to Egypt, do you remember, to buy bread from Joseph. Now, think of all that wealth then going down into Egypt, brothers and sisters, and imagine what we know of Joseph. And in fact, the next reference to gold, interestingly, in your Bible, is when Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison and he puts the gold ring on Joseph's hand as a symbol now of his authority as the second in command in Egypt and he makes him ruler over Egypt and if you remember by the end of the famine all the Egyptians are absolutely destitute Joseph has taken their money the money's gone it's now all in Pharaoh's coffers and he's taken all of their cattle if you remember Pharaoh now owns all the cattle and uh, Joseph taxed all the people and, and, it, and he exchanged all of their animals for, for grain. And then when the animals ran out, he took all their land. Do you remember? So by the time the end of the famine came under Joseph's tenure, the Egyptians had nothing, absolutely nothing. Everything had been taken by the government to Pharaoh. Pharaoh owned everything. The people owned nothing, but they'd been fed. And Joseph had ensured their lives had been secured. And the only people who had money by the end of the uh, Egyptian famine were the families living in Goshen, who had been wealthy families to begin with, of course. But from what I can read of the Exodus story, had been exempted from the taxation that Joseph had levied on the Egyptian people. And Joseph had fed his family and nurtured them through that period. Now, come with and sisters to Exodus chapter three, because the question is then, well, hang on a second. What happened to all of that money in Egypt? All of the wealth of Abraham that he'd handed down to his family, what had happened to it? And we're not told specifically, brothers and sisters, about it, but we know it went. And by the time we meet Israel in the opening pages of the Exodus record, of course, they are now slaves. They're not wealthy people anymore. All the money has gone. And maybe it's not without coincidence, princesses, that what we also know about Israel at this time in terms of their faith is that they were also not faithful people either. In fact, Ezekiel, is it Ezekiel who tells us that, they're, they're, that they were not God-believing, uh, a God-believing generation? They had lost their faith and their behaviour uh, demonstrated it. And here we meet Moses at the burning bush with God. And I want you to notice very specifically, Brentus, is one of the things God says to Moses here about the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. And you might remember this detail. Exodus 3, um, verse 20. I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, Moses, God says, he will let you go. And notice now this little detail in verse 21. And I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. And it will come to pass that when you go, you will not go empty. Every woman will borrow of her neighbour and of her that sojourns in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And you will put them on your sons and your daughters and you will spoil the Egyptians. 
Now, isn't that a lovely detail? And it doesn't come up later, brothers and sisters. I mean, it does come up later, but it starts here. One of the first pieces of information God gave Moses right here at the burning bush, before the plagues had even started, is that when they leave Egypt, they're going to leave Egypt as wealthy people, not as slaves anymore. They're going to take all the gold and silver of Egypt. They're going to take jewels of silver and gold, and they're going to take fine Egyptian clothing. And notice who they're going to put it on. It's not going to be for them. You will put it upon your sons and your daughters, and you will spoil the Egyptians. Isn't that lovely detail, brothers and sisters? And in fact, brothers and sisters, this detail was so important, it's mentioned three other times in the, in the scriptural record. You remember them probably. Chapter 11, it comes up again. And verse 2, speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbour and every woman of her neighbour jewels of silver and of gold. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. And it comes again in chapter 12 and verse 35. Um, and the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses and they borrowed of the Egyptians. It's a lovely word in the authorised version, isn't it? They borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. And in fact, the last reference to it, brothers and sisters, which we definitely don't have time to look at now, is in, even in Psalm 105, verse 37, even the psalmist remarks on the extraordinary things that took place on Passover night when the Egyptians handed over all of their material wealth and gave it to the children of Israel. Now, can you imagine that scene, brothers and sisters, on Passover night? If you'd have been a parent or a grandparent on Passover night, as you made your way in the moonlight through the waters of the Red Sea, looking at your children and your grandchildren, who'd grown up as slaves with nothing in the land of Egypt. And here they were walking across the dry seabed of the Red Sea, bejeweled in fine Egyptian cottons, and with gold and silver earrings and bracelets and all sorts of marvellous things. And you would have been wondering, wouldn't you, why of all the things God had asked of Moses that they were to put these items on their children. And it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that as God saw his people being redeemed out of Egypt, he wanted the parents of that generation to feel how God had felt that night. Spiritually speaking, the wonder of what God had done in redeeming his people. And he symbolized it by covering them in these beautiful things that they would have never possessed had it not been for God's intervention and redemption. Isn't that lovely? Now, the question then is, brothers and sisters, what did God want them to do with all of those precious things that they'd taken from Egypt? Well, just turn over a few pages to Exodus 25, because you remember this request that God made. Chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. And, and these are just beautiful words of every man who gives it willingly with his heart. You will take my offering. 
And this is the offering that you will take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and so on and so on. So that in verse eight, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. Right. So God says, now then, of all that stuff that I gave you on Passover night, if anybody's willing to give some of it back, are you willing to take it and use it to make me a sanctuary? Now, that's a big question, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And um, there was a number of ways God could have done that, isn't there? God could have said, now, listen, I took an inventory on Passover night and I know that the Manel family took X, Y and Z and the Palmer family took such and such and such and such. And if you don't mind now, I'm going to stand. I'm going to make Moses stand here with the clipboard and I want to count it all back in now. God didn't do that, did he? He said, let every man bring me an offering from his heart, willingly. And the lovely thing is, Brentis, is when they finally did give it, of course, finally, because it took 10 chapters before they did finally bring it, there was an abundance and Moses had to say, stop, we've got enough. And there's, a, there's something telling about that in itself, isn't there, Brentis, is that of all the wealth God had ensured that Israel had taken on Passover night, there was more than God needed for the sanctuary and the challenge was whether those who had received it could get that balance right in their life between giving back what which God needed or or required or wanted as an offering and that which the people wanted to keep for themselves and it's been one of the great challenges of human history hasn't it to just work that out in each individual man or woman's life as to how they work that out in whatever blessings they've been given by God to use them in the right way, that our lives ultimately might always be a sanctuary, a dwelling place for God. Now, what did they do, in fact, brothers and sisters, with the things God had given? Because before they made the tabernacle with these precious things, they made something else, didn't they? Do you remember the moment when Moses came down the mountain in Exodus 32 and he saw that they'd taken off the golden earrings that were in their ears and they cast them in the fire and something else had come out of the fire, somehow the golden calf. And again, it was an extraordinary, very visible metaphor that Paul would later use, wouldn't he, in Corinthians to describe this very clashing juxtaposition of, of, of valuable concepts and how they just came together in, in this terrible clanging symbol of Exodus 32, as instead of offering that material for the sanctuary of God, it was offered and used to make the idol that became the golden calf. So that was where the wealth uh, went so we saw it in the, in Abraham's family we saw it disappear through the Egypt Egypt years we saw it come back then in the Exodus and they entered the land of Canaan with this extraordinary wealth uh, that they'd taken from Egypt let's take a look at another period then of great wealth one Corinthians one, one Corinthians one Chronicles uh, one Chronicles chapter eighteen and uh, we're into the uh, the David and Solomon era now, of course, which was ca characterised to some degree by wealth. 
1 Chronicles chapter 18. And this is one of the chapters that catalogues David's um, campaigns against the remaining inhabitants of the land and some of its neighbours to try and finally, after all of those years through the, through, after the wilderness, through Joshua and through the judges, to finally bring ab abiding rest to the land and to the people of God. And just look to some of the descriptions here as to what David did. Verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 18. When two king of Hamath heard how David had smitten all the host of Hadareza, king of Zobar, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David to inquire of his welfare and to congratulate him because he fought against Hadareza and smitten him. For Hadareza had war with two and with him all manner of vessels of gold and silver and brass. These also King David dedicated to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he brought from all these nations, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia and Amalek. So just a little, little side note there to tell you that of all these campaigns David went on, whenever he went, he took all the plunder and he didn't put it in his own bank account. He put it in God's bank account. He dedicated all of the things that he took from those campaigns, the vessels of gold and silver and brass, and he dedicated them to the Lord. And it came to, it actually came to a point, if you remember, towards the end of David's reign, uh, where Joab particularly just can't understand why David would want any more. He's amassed such an extraordinary wealth. And one of the discussions had between David and Joab when, when David wanted to uh, carry out the census, if you remember, which ended up being quite a disaster, was uh, uh, Joab's uh, kind of bit growing impatience with the fact that all this wealth has been amassed by David, and the only thing he's doing with it is growing this massive bank account, which, of course, we know what David had in mind for it. And if you just turn over a few chapters to chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles, you remember these words, in fact, verse 1 there, this is the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is what David says when he discovers where finally the foundation of the house is to be laid. And if you come down to verse 14, um, David reminds us here, in my trouble, he says, in my affliction, I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a thousand thousand talents of silver, and of brass and of iron without weight, for it is in abundance. Timber and stone have I prepared, that, and you may add to it, he says to Solomon. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, hewers and workers of stone and timber, and all manner of cunning men for every manner of work, of the gold, the silver and the brass and the iron. There is no number. Arise, therefore, he says to Solomon, and be doing, and the Lord be with thee. And this is one of the reasons why Solomon's temple was going to become one of the wonders of the world because David had amassed this extraordinary wealth and it had come from all nations. Do you remember that little list? Edom, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, all these nations unwittingly had contributed to the wealth that was going to become the house of God. And there's a rich lesson in that, brothers and sisters, that we'll see as we, as we draw towards a conclusion. <coughs> Um, there are lots there are lots more of these kinds of chapters. Let me just finish with a couple quickly. Chapter 28. 
of, of 1 Chronicles because this repeated reference to the sheer, almost unimaginable collection of wealth that, um, that David has amassed for the house of the Lord. Uh, chapter 28 and verse 11, um, David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch of the temple and of the houses and of the treasuries and of the upper chambers and so on and so on. And, um, and verse 13, for the course of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service and for the vessels of service in the house of, God, of the Lord, he gave of gold by weight. And it goes on to list there the gold and the silver and the items there and what they were to be used for in, in the building of, uh, of the temple that David, of course, could never do for himself. And uh, we don't have time to look at any more of these, but um, Solomon, of course, goes on himself to describe not only what David had prepared, and in fact, David would later say, not only the, the temple treasury did I put aside for God, but of my own personal wealth too, David said, I give everything to God. Isn't that extraordinary testimony, brothers and sisters, for one of the wealthiest man, men who ever lived, for his sole desire to be to build a sanctuary for God, to be a place where all nations, he described the temple, that they might come and learn of God and that we might teach them of his ways. Isn't that lovely? And isn't it interesting, when as you go through Solomon's life, of course, the reason God made Solomon so wealthy is because he asked for wisdom. Do you remember right, right back where we started? Wisdom was compared to these precious things. And do you remember when God said to Solomon, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. What did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. And the irony is, of course, when, God, when Solomon asked for that, God said, well, because you didn't ask for all of, the, all of the other things you could have asked for, as well as giving you wisdom, I'm going to give you riches too. So that we're finally told that in the stones in Jerusalem, um, were like were, were, he, what is the phrase he made the silver in 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 jerusalem like the like stones and the gold was just unimaginable in its quantity and and in its wealth however brothers and sisters it all went didn't it despite those extraordinary years under solomon it was all taken and the first hint of it was when Hezekiah, do you remember, showed evil Meridak his treasure house and God got so cross with him. And of course, whenever there's a concentration of wealth like that, it's going to be eyed by people, isn't it? And it's going to become a risk. And Jerusalem became a big focus for the nations around because they wanted the wealth that, that Jerusalem became absolutely renowned for. And finally, Solomon took uh, Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar, took the lot. Second uh, Kings chapter 24 and verse 13. And I want you to notice this statement, brothers and sisters. Second Kings 24 and verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valour, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths 
none remained save the poorest people of the land. So it's interesting here now, and I want to put it to you, Brent, sisters, you're also getting a little metaphor here now too, that at the point in time at which all these nobles and um, special people were taken away, um, of which Daniel and his friends were, were among them, of course, to, to uh, Babylon, at the same time, God carried away all the treasures of the house of the Lord. And in fact, if you want just another evidence of that, that the two are to be seen as a, a metaphor of one another. Come with me to Jeremiah 27. When Jeremiah speaks of that same incident <clears throat> and he prophesies about it. And it's hard to work out what Jeremiah is speaking about. Is he speaking about the vessels of the temple or is he speaking about the people? Jeremiah chapter 27 and verse uh, 16. I spoke to the priests and to all this people saying, thus says the Lord, hearken not to the words of your prophets that prophesy unto you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon for they prophesy a lie. Hearken not unto them, serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? But if they be prophets and if the word of the Lord be with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem go not to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars and the sea and the bases and the residue of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took not when he carried captive Jeconiah and all the nobles of Jerusalem. Yea, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. So you, again, you see the very mixed ideas here in this lovely little prophecy that the vessels would return from Babylon. When the people return from Babylon, the two are absolutely intrinsically linked together. And in fact, you get the evidence of that when you come to Daniel's prophecy, if you remember, because Daniel is the one who tells you in chapter one, the, one of the very first thing Daniel wants you to know is that when Nebuchadnezzar arrived in Jerusalem or his army, carrying all these precious things from the treasure house of Jer the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar put them in, his, in, the, in the treasure store of his own God and there they stayed. And in fact, they were catalogued by somebody, you might want to wonder who, until the day that they would return under the instruction of Cyrus, uh, which is why God's work in that regard was, was so important. And, uh, and in fact, uh, you might remember how cross Daniel got with, with uh, Belshazzar in Daniel 5, at, uh, on the night when Belshazzar was slain. When, when Belshazzar had the audacity to take out some of those vessels from the, uh, the treasure house of Nebuchadnezzar and mock the God of Israel and drink, ironically, to the gods of silver and gold and wood and stone. And that night, of course, God weighed Belshazzar in the balance and found him wanting because although he thought he was one of the wealthiest men in the world, with all these treasures in his vault, God weighed those values very differently. And in fact, in Ezra chapter one, I, I'm pretty sure I can't look at it with you. It's very beautiful how carefully 
Ezra counts every one of those vessels back as they make their way back to Jerusalem. And the point that's being made, Princess, is God didn't lose princesses God didn't lose sight of any one of those vessels that had significance to him they were important to him not because they were golden cups or whatever tools they might have been from the temple but because of what they represented they were people they were the precious sons of Zion and God made sure that every single one of them was counted back you just have to read Ezra chapter one to get that sense now I want to finish with you princesses with two final little references uh, and the first one is in Haggai chapter 2 and this is a reference um, that of course comes during the return from exile period when the children of Israel should have been rebuilding the temple with these precious things and of course they've stopped and Haggai is the prophet who God stirs up in order to get them rebuilding again because the uh, the 70 years that, Jer- uh, that Daniel spoke of in the desolations of Jerusalem are now almost accomplished and it's time for the temple to be finished. And it's a beautiful prophecy, this, and it speaks volumes, brothers and sisters, about the future too. And you're and my place in it. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6, you might remember this prophecy. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. And when you think about what that prophecy is saying, Francis, it's it's a, it's a very spine-tingling moment. Let's just do a little bit of translation here, shall we? One more time, says God through Haggai, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Do you remember where we read that earlier this evening in, in Isaiah 13, when God described what he was going to do with Babylon and Jerusalem, the shaking the heavens and the earth. Well, I'm going to do it one more time, says God. But this time it's not just Babylon and Judah that's going to be affected. All nations will come, says God. And you know what that's speaking of, don't you? And he says the desire, in the authorised version, it says the desire of all nations will come. And that little phrase there in the Hebrew means the desirable things it's normally translated the precious things. And out of all pieces of parts of the earth where God knows that his precious stones and his golden vessels and his silver vessels have been scattered, where God knows where every single one of those items is. And when I shake the heavens and the earth one more time, says God, they will all come to Jerusalem and I will make the latter end of this house more glorious than the former. Isn't that lovely, brothers and sisters? And an amazing prophecy of the precious things, which, of course, is a reference to you and to me and all those precious stones and golden vessels in God's eyes that are lying in the earth awaiting for God's call. And the final verse that we must go to, of course, which you know well, is in Malachi chapter three. How could we not end 
with this, uh, this lovely verse. In Malachi 3, verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And how does God describe, brothers and sisters, those who simply by keeping alive their faith and that of their brothers and sisters, how did God respond to that? How did he feel about that? Well, verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, says God, says the authorised version there, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. And that little phrase there in the authorised version, my jewels, never normally translated jewels in the anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's the phrase you're used to reading, my peculiar treasure. Do you remember when God used that as a description of Israel back there in Exodus 19? My peculiar treasure. It's the same description God, uh, David gave of his own bank account, of my own proper good. He said, I have dedicated to the Lord all of these things. Well, in that day, says God, my bank account is made up of these people who feared my name and thought on it and spoke of it. And that's why Bible schools are so valuable, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to talk together and to keep alive our faith, because it turns what otherwise would have been just carbon, just normal, average, common garden dust into a product that by processes strange and various becomes a stone of great value, very precious in God's eyes. And brothers and sisters, God sees the whole heaven and he knows where every precious stone is buried in the earth. He knows where every golden and silver vessel is located. And one day, brothers and sisters, when God finally shakes the heavens and the earth one more time, he will gather them all together and then he will see his children, just as the children of Israel did on the night they were redeemed from Egypt. Do you remember? Bedecked and bejeweled with these beautiful garments and these beautiful jewels and gems. Just like it was on Passover night, just when finally, brothers and sisters, the bride is prepared and adorned for her husband and new Jerusalem, glittering, glistening, shining with every gate and every foundation stone and every piece of pavement covered, as it were, like glass with these beautiful stones and jewels and materials. And what an extraordinary promise, brothers and sisters, that you and I carry to be one grain, one piece, one part of that precious city, of the adornments of that precious bride. And we must never, ever stop seeing ourselves, brothers and sisters, God sees us and lose focus on the real true value of wealth that the God offers us to get wisdom and understanding and the fear of the Lord. These are the things that turn what otherwise would have been just carbon, just dust into these truly beautiful and precious stones. Mm -hmm.